Now, if you'd like to turn again to Isaiah chapter 30, which I'm going to be preaching from now, that's on page uh, two, sorry, 702. Now, I'm just going to pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we do praise you for the cycle that you give us of morning and evening worship. We thank you, Lord, that uh, indeed you met with your disciples on Easter day, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. And we thank you so much, Lord, that as Sundays have continued down these last 2,000 years, that cycle of worship has carried on somewhere on the planet. Believers meeting together early in the morning, mid-morning, or in the afternoon or evening, and worshipping you, but also, Lord, hearing your word. And we do remember the, uh, the people on the Maes Road who, whose hearts burn within them when they heard you speaking. And we pray, Lord, that Lord, there will be things that will burn their way into our hearts this evening and, and bless us, Lord, with your love. Correct us, Lord, with your truth. And Lord, indeed, if there's someone listening uh, that isn't, isn't yet a believer, that will, Lord, uh, this word will encourage them, comfort them, uh, enable them to have faith in Jesus Christ and turn away from a life lived without him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, every three weeks or so, I'm going to be preaching from Isaiah. Uh, I intend to do a series of sermons on the book. But I'll be doing it thematically. I'm not going to be going through verse by verse. Um, I think it's perfectly biblical to uh, follow in that, that way, actually, because if we look at the book of Hebrews, or in fact, most of the New Testament books, where the Old Testament is quoted, it's not actually uh, given a, a verse-by-verse exposition, which, of course, is, is, is perfectly, uh, perfectly a biblical thing to do, verse-by-verse, but equally well, it's perfectly uh, biblical also to to divide the word of truth. Uh, Paul, Paul talks about rightly dividing the words of truth and taking out some from there and, and explaining how it links with another scripture and so on. And I'm going to be doing this with uh, the book of Isaiah over a number of months. Uh, and every two or three weeks I'll be looking into Isaiah. Now I've called tonight's sermon the Atheist Prayer. <laughs> if you wonder, what, what, what do I mean? Well, can we look at verse 11? Verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 30. In fact, starting at verse 10. Um, and it's, it's got a very contemporary feel to it, these verses, actually. Uh, because we, we can see in these verses that at the time of Isaiah, Isaiah and the prophets were being cancelled by the bully tyrants of his day. Um, some were false prophets, but some were simply kings or or other uh, influential people. In verse 10 it says, Those who say to the seers, now a seer is another name for a prophet, someone who saw visions, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, because what is right is often not smooth. Truth is often jagged and painful, and it scours our soul and and stings us and pains us. That's what truth is like. Moral truth is not smooth and, and nice and easy. But that's, of course, the people of uh, Jeremiah's day and the people of Isaiah's day were saying, peace, peace, 
when there was no peace. Prophesying illusions, fantasies, delusions, ridiculous contradictions. Does that sound familiar in today's woke world? And in particular, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Now, that for me is a working definition of the atheism the Bible describes. Say no more, hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. You see, this is my own particular definition of a practical atheist. One to whom, to, uh, for whom, all, to all intents and purposes, he wants to leave a holy God out of his thinking and his life. Now notice the adjective, a holy God. You see, this is, the ad- this is the adjective, or it is the term, that Isaiah, more than any of all of the other prophets, actually uses. He uses this phrase, the holy, the holy one, the holy one of Israel, 34 times. Jeremiah only uses it twice. Ezekiel uses a circumlocution which is similar but not the same. The holy one of Israel, and as we know... Isaiah chapter 6, probably the, one of the most famous chapters about Isaiah, is all about this incredible vision of the holiness of God, which I mentioned in my first, um, first sermon on Isaiah a few weeks ago when I was talking about the vision of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1. But the practical atheist doesn't want a holy God. Now that's a bit different from when I was teaching philosophy, of course, at, at school, uh, to uh, sixth formers. Of course, atheism uh, in general ha- is purely a conceptual term about uh, arguments against there being a creator, a deity. But you see, the Bible is not concerned merely about theoretical arguments. It's talking about a real person, that is God, and that he's holy. And if we start discussing God as though he wasn't holy, actually we're practical atheists. And if we start not thinking about a holy God, we're practical atheists. And if a preacher doesn't talk about a holy God, he is actually a practical atheist. And so I want to think about three atheist prayers. I firstly want to think about this, uh, this atheist prayer that's here in verse, in verse 11. Leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. That is... That is the plea, the prayer, the wish of modern atheism. No, we don't want to hear anything about the Ten Commandments. We don't want to hear anything about uh, your 19th, not 19th century, your, your first century views on sex or on society. We don't want to hear your views on, on murder or, uh, or, uh, and uh, the, the protection of uh, unborn life. We don't hear any of this. So I want to think about that. I also want to think about uh, not only people who don't want God in their world, I want to think about practical atheists who wish God was in their world. Now I'm talking here about unbelievers who actually know that their life has gone wrong. They know they've messed up and, and they actually do know that there is a God, but he doesn't actually have any part to play in their life. And they're starting to want to know God. And they're starting to want to have God's intervention in their life. And so I'm going to talk to those practical atheists and how they should be praying. And thirdly, I want to actually talk about Christians um, who have developed habits of practical atheism from time to time. What do I mean? Well, I, I, I suppose people might say I'm being a bit 
a bit over the top in saying this, and maybe I am, but I, I am going to say it anyway. Sometimes we as Christians can go, can, can actually get in habits of thought which leave a holy God out of the world, like the creator out of our, our worldview. We can be organizing our lives around our agendas and what we think may happen and when we're going to retire, when we're going to do this, what we're going to do next, which holiday we're going to go on. And we're not having God on our agenda at all, really. He's neatly buttoned up on Sundays or, you know, in some other uh, commitments we made. You know, that, that's our commitment, our church commitment, uh, there, there and there. It might be, actually, also that sometimes Christians can get into ungodly habits, uh, both openly and secretly. And in every case, when we're, in, we're, when we're doing things habitually, like, for instance, swearing, getting angry, bitterness, lust, pride and arrogance, prejudice, all of these things... We, we, even Christians may be unaware of the fact that actually this is happening all the time. And actually, what, actually they're leaving a holy God out of their life. So I want to look at uh, those, um, those, uh, those ideas and those three things. Um, but, so I want to start off by noting these people who don't want God in their life. And uh, could we turn over to Isaiah chapter 5 for a second to, to see some more things that Isaiah has to say to those who will not have the holy God in their thought form or in, the, in their thought forms or in their actual practical living. So on Isaiah chapter 5, starting at verse 18, starting at verse 18, that's on page 677 in the church Bible, it says this, Isaiah says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin with cart ropes. Now, that's describing, I think it's describing people who are going to great pains to, to be involved in sin. They're lying and cheating, and they're, they're, actually, uh, they're actually putting great effort into their, the sin that's in their lives. They draw sin as with cart ropes, as though they've got uh, cart horses dragging these sins along and bringing them into existence. And these are the people, verse uh, 19, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, let it come that we may know it. Now, this is mockery of the prophet Isaiah by, by people, and also, of course, mockery of God. The mocking voice of people who say, oh, not a Bible thumper again. Oh, no, don't give me all of this nonsense. Now, notice it says, woe to those. Woe to those people. When we, when we uh, meet and read of these uh, terrible uh, Christian uh, uh, opponents of Christianity... We ought to feel sorry for them, sad for them, just like we ought to feel very sad for, for people who, uh, whose lives end in, in humiliation and disaster, as we see them on the TV, whether it be politicians or celebrities, far from you know, rejoicing with the rest of the world, we ought to be saying, oh, how, how, how sad, how sad it is that they've ended up in such a mess, and how, how we should pray for them. The woe to that verse, 
uh, 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in a culture that this is precisely happening. The, the influencers and the people who are making, uh, who, are, who are worming their way into uh, influential positions in education, in politics, in law, various other things, are actually teaching people to say the exact opposite of the truth. Darkness for light, light for darkness. Henry mentioned this morning a teacher who simply was doing his, doing his job as a human being uh, and yet finds himself without a job, without a salary, uh, with an uncertain future simply because he had integrity and he, he spoke the truth as he saw it. Verse 31. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sights. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking. Now, uh, I would like us uh, to, to um, note this. These people, the practical atheists, are made in the image of God. Now, if we can get back to Isaiah 30 for a, uh, for a few minutes. So that's again on page um, 702. I want us to notice that the people that are mentioned in Isaiah 30, verses 9 and 10, are called, are actually the children of God. They're, they are people um, who, verse 9, they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear. Now one of the themes throughout Isaiah is the people of Israel were the children of God. Now, actually, to extend the truth, indeed all men and women in this world are made in the image of God and have a family likeness to God. We have characteristics as human beings. We aren't infinite. We aren't invisible. We aren't purely spiritual. We're made of flesh and blood and we have a, a soul joined to it. But we're not like God in that respect. But we do have intelligence, creativity. We make relationships. But the Bible shows that human beings are no longer guided by the living God, who we've been uh, produced by to begin with, but like Israel, all human beings are stubborn. As it says in verse 9, they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. They use the uh, possibility of having relationships well, unfortunately, many people use that to betray people. Or they make relationships with those they shouldn't do. And in this case, um, of course, we're told that the people of Israel made alliances with foreign countries that they were specifically told not to make alliances with. They despised the word. They... Um, made these relationships were, which were not of the Spirit of God. Now, let me point this out, that if you want to be a Christian, you must not make re relationships that the Lord doesn't want you to have. If you are a Christian, you shouldn't want to marry a non-Christian. And as going out with someone, having a boyfriend or a girlfriend, is okay, it's a long way from getting married, but it's a step along the way. Christians and non-Christians, uh, Christians shouldn't really want to have romantic relationships close friendships uh, with non-Christians of the opposite sex because it's not going anywhere. And it's not of God's choosing. 
It says quite specifically, uh, Paul says in, in Corinthians, that uh, you know, we're, you know, we're not, uh, we're not to, to, to make these kind of relationships. What has light got in common with darkness? Whether it be in a close business relationship or whether it be in a romantic relationship, believers and unbelievers have nothing in common. And uh, we can see that what uh, we're told in, uh, towards, the end of these, uh, towards the end of these verses is this, is that we end up with simply shame and disgrace. Um, in verse 5, um, in fact we'll start, at, we'll start at verse 4 of chapter 30, um, it says, although his officials are at Zon and his envoys reach Hanes, trying to make an uh, alliance with the Egyptians, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Now, I want us uh, to notice, therefore, that uh, we live in a society uh, which fits this picture. They refuse the word of God. They, uh, they treat uh, the word of God with contempt. And they um, carry on without consulting the Lord. Now, the thing is this, is that uh, there may be someone listening who themselves is thinking of becoming a Christian. Well, how can you, how can you um, become a believer in, in God? How can God include you in his purposes? Well, the first thing I want to point out is this. Isaiah says that one of the things about God the Holy One is that he expects there to be a difference in the way a person who is a believer lives. Now, if we could look at Isaiah 17 and verse 7, um, we have one of the 34 times that Isaiah uses the expression of the Holy One of Israel. And in it, he describes actually what happens when a man looks, or a woman looks, towards the Holy One. It says in Isaiah 17, verse 7, In that day man will look to his Maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the works of his hands, that is, the altars of the idols, of the pagan false religions. And he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the Ashrim or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooden heights and the hilltops which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. Desolation in these altars. Now, the thing is, the Bible tells us that if whatever your substitute is for your relationship with the living God, in, in the end it will be a desolation. Whether, because in the end, we die. And in the end, the things that we so wanted, the money, the career, the relationship, we, it will all be left behind us. We need to understand that we've got to turn away from that which was holding us. We need to repent. And uh, it says in verse, uh, 19, uh, sorry, verse 10, For you've forgotten the God of your salvation, have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branches of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief 
and incurable pain. Now this is a direct prophecy of all of those who turn away from the living God to their own way. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, to our own idols, to our own lifestyle, to our own philosophy, to our own uh, future that we think is in front of us. And the Lord says, if we do this, we will get nothing but desolation and incurable pain. And you see, if you, one of the things that happens to a, a non-believer, one of the first things that starts to happen is they start to perceive the desolation of their soul and the desolation of their future. We often talk about someone being convicted of their sins. But actually, often it's not so much just a conviction of our sins, but a conviction of the holiness of God and of the destruction that follows of, from entering the holiness of God's presence. You see, if you're not a, not, not, not a believer yet, you must understand that prayer begins with a reverence for a holy God. It says in the book of Hebrews that, you know, uh, that we are to you know, draw near to God with, with, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, and he said, look, you start off like this. Daddy, our Father, who is in heaven. And that's familiar, isn't it? But it's a familiarity that does not breed contempt if we take Jesus' next words seriously. Hallowed, sanctified, holy is your name. In other words, when we come to pray, we come because we believe that God loves us. He's our Father that loves us. But at the same time, we know He is the Holy One of Israel. He is an awesome person that we must come into His presence leaving our sins behind, leaving behind our lies and coming into, coming into his presence with all. Uh, you needn't look this one up, but I will read it. It says in Isaiah 29, verse 23, For when he sees his children, the work of my hands, in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And there we have that, the phrase, the Holy One of Jacob, a specific person, rather than Israel, the whole, uh, the whole of the, uh, the whole of the people of Israel. But I wonder if, I wonder if for me or for you, we could say personally, is he the Holy One of, of Derek or or Phil or or Mary or Abdul or whoever you know, whoever we are, Ed, is he the Holy One? my life or is it rather that unfortunately he he's just god who we don't treat as holy and don't sanctify as holy and because we don't sanctify him as holy we ourselves also live unholy lives you see the wonderful thing of course in the book of isaiah is that we have this marvelous fact that the holy one who we come to is at the same time a God who is prepared to redeem us. As I said, if you are a non-Christian, you must understand that, that God is, is our Father we may come to. He has love for us. But equally well, we understand he is the Holy One. But this Holy One speaks to us as our Redeemer. Now this I would like you to look at, at well if you've got a Bible at home, Isaiah 41 and verse 14. If not, you can just listen 
um, to the reading of it. Because in Isaiah 41 and uh, 14 and 15, we have this tremendous message to people who are no better than worms before God. Filthy, weak worms. And uh, God delightfully <laughs> addresses people as worms. Now really, on the movies, you only get the villains calling people worms. Why is it that God calls us worms and I says it's delightful? Well, because God knows everything about you and everything about me and he knows that we're weak and filthy as worms. And yet he loves us. And he wants to redeem us and he wants to change us from being wormy into being something superb. So if you look at verse 14, it says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel, a whole lot of you worms. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now let me stop for a second and say this. God has a Redeemer, is a Redeemer, of those uh, who are failed, hopeless, miserable, dirty, weak, sinful people. And that Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who was condemned for our sins, who took the punishment for our sins upon himself, who provided a way for us to be cleansed from our sins, and who has provided a way for us to be transformed, if we trust him. And you'll see what the transformation becomes. It says, Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new sharp and having teeth, you shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. Now, what does that mean? Well, actually, it's saying that we will become a spiritual crushing machine. From being a worm, which is trod upon and squidged, we suddenly become, in 3,000 years ago, or 2,500 years ago when this was written, he was talking about uh, a threshing sledge, which I, I guess was like a, 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 a very heavy um, thing that rolled across the wheat and threshed it, crushed the wheat, and the grain was released, and the, the chaff was blown away, all of the bits and pieces were brushed away, and the grain was gathered. It was a bit of technology which represented weight, power, and strength, the very opposite of a worm. Now, God wants to take us as sinners and not merely forgive us our sins, but to transform us so that we become crushers of evil and sin. Instead of being crushed by it, which unfortunately we are by ourselves, we start to crush it. And we crush it in these ways. And if you want to become a Christian, you've got to understand this is what God wants to do. He wants to make you a holy person like him. He wants to make me a holy person like him. But we don't have the will, we don't have the, the power within ourselves to actually systematically change us. But we're told in the book of Romans that if we present ourselves to God as his servants and servants of righteousness through his Holy Spirit, he will enable us to crush our old habits, our old ways, the old man. The word that is used is mortification in the old English that was used. The killing of the, of the old way of life. And uh, this, is, this is what becoming a Christian is meant to be. So if you want to become a Christian, you approach the Lord honestly, reverently, aware that he is holy, and you accept Jesus Christ as your Redeemer, and 
you accept him as your Lord of your life to start changing you and transforming you into his likeness, to be holy. And that means putting to death, crushing that which was, uh, that which was wrong. Now, um, you'll see that it says in, in, verse, uh, in verse 15, you shall thresh the mountains and crush them. This is the second half. And you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away. The tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. And a Christian becomes someone who delights to know God. Glories in God and praises the Lord. And uh, it goes on in in, in this chapter to tell us that when we are thirsting for this, when we are thirsting for salvation, when we're, oh Lord, I really would like this to happen in my life, God supplies what we need. It says in verse 17, when the poor and needy seek waters, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. Now here is the wonderful promise both to the non-Christian seeking salvation, but us, to us as Christians who often feel weak and dry and empty in our Christian lives, that God sees us when we are thirsty. And unlike biological thirst, which actually you can't really, you know... I mean, I was really thirsty when I got here because I've been uh, sweating away, running and cycling to get to church almost on time. Um, that's biological and you can't help being thirsty. But with a spiritual thirst, it's different. You see, we, we, we're aware of our needs, but we actually have to come and, and to, the, to, to the holy, loving God of our Lord Jesus Christ and thirst for him. We have to direct ourselves and our souls and spirit to actually ask the Lord to, to bring his waters down. We have to actually, if you like, put up a... Uh, a feeding tube uh, we might say that down the waters come to us we must seek him when the poor and needy seek water and there's none I the God of Israel will not forsake them now you uh, as a maybe a non-Christian who's really says I would really love to become a Christian I want to know Jesus I wouldn't want to trust him just call out to God and trust him and he will open rivers on the bare heights his Holy Spirit will work in your life and enable you to trust in Jesus now I finally want to talk uh, about um, the last practical atheist remember I've talked about those who uh, are atheists who don't want God in their world and I've also talked about those who are atheists who are practical atheists who want to change people who aren't believers who want change, and and I've suggested uh, the approach that Isaiah tells us uh, we may have to our our God. Um, But now I want to think about um, those of us who are troubled by sins in our own life and by um, a sense that there are areas of our life that God isn't in control of or we're not growing as we should to. Well, how can we have more of a holy God in our own life? And how can we be more holy? Well, the first thing I would suggest to you is this. We need to be taught by the Lord every day. Now, again, uh, if, if, you've, if you've still got Isaiah 30 open, if you carry on into Isaiah 31, 
You'll see it says this. Isaiah 31 verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they're so many, and in horsemen because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. You see, during Isaiah's day, there were all kinds of uh, politicians and kings, for that matter, who were trying to get themselves out of trouble by these alliances, by seeking power and strength, not from God to deal with the situation, but other, other methods. And their, their basic problem was they weren't consulting God. That's why it's so important to have the word of God in our life. That's why it's so important that we have the framework for understanding the word of God. Now sometimes the Bible studies, sometimes sermons, can seem to be a bit theological. They can appear to be a bit abstract sometimes. And you can say, oh, you know, it's not, not really exciting. But actually what we have to understand is that the Bible contains vivid, exciting, tr- direct truth that, that hits us between the eyes and, 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 and fills us with glory. But it also contains very important framework of ideas and truths that make us understand the world in which we live and help us to understand key passages of the Bible. And we need to be looking into that truth and consulting the truth day by day. You see, uh, in Isaiah 48, verse 17, and again, I'll read this out, you need to look it up. It's on page 724 if you want to. It says this, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you'd paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. You see, the Lord teaches us through the word of God. And that that word of God has a prism. There's reading the Bible, there's talking to people, there's listening to sermons, reading Christian books, all kinds of things involved in the word of God coming into our lives. This is meant to be paid attention to, and it leads to profit. And that profit, of course, is peace and contentment and eternal life. And enables us to walk the way we should be able to walk. Now, we need to, uh, to profit from each day. And we're not profiting at all from any day if we're not putting God at the center of our life and consulting his word. We need to have our eyes fixed on things above. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, which I mentioned last week, Isaiah had a vision of the holiness of heaven. Now, you might say, oh, I wish I had a vision like that. Well, God isn't going to give you a vision like that, probably. <laughs> but what he has done, he's given you that vision. <laughs> you don't need, a, you don't need a, a fresh one. He's given it to you. It's there in the Bible. And all we need to do is to have an insight into what that vision says and a growing insight into what the word of God means. So when we, when we read about Isaiah in the temple, we need to understand that we need to We need to be thinking about heaven's glory. We need to be thinking about the greatness of our God and the unceasing nature of the activity that is happening in heaven throughout space and time 
of the angels giving glory to him. And the angels saying holy and the awareness of the majesty of his wisdom and of his love and of his grace. When we see the Lord, when we understand Isaiah 6, we're, we're just amazed uh, how, how great he is. And as we, as we meditate upon it and think about it, we start having a bigger and bigger thoughts of God. At the same time, we are also convicted and humbled as, as Isaiah cried, Woe is me! When he realized that, that this great and wonderful heavenly vision was being participated in by a, a filthy, dirty human being like Isaiah. And he, he cries out, you know, I, I'm, I'm lost. And then he hears a voice telling him that he's cleansed and he's, he's redeemed. There, there is a coal taken from the altar of redemption, we might say, and applied to his lips and his heart is cleansed. And then, from this vision, he's motivated to serve. He hears a voice saying, whom will I send? Whom will go for us? And, and Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Now I want to suggest that far from being this just a story that we hear from time to time, this is, a, this is something that actually should be the kind of engine room of our life day by day as we come into the Lord's presence. To be heavenly minded is not to have a dreamy mystical religion. It's to be humbled as Isaiah was, grounded, cleansed, and motivated to live a holy life on earth serving God. And uh, we do need to understand the beauty and glory of this holiness. Um, Isaiah 55 says this, Behold, you shall call a nation that you don't know, and a nation that you did not know, you shall run to because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. The Holy One of Israel has glorified you. Isaiah 60. have a very similar and wonderful thing. It says in Isaiah 60 verse 9. For the coastlands shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first. Be from all over the world. Will hope in God. They, they bring their children from afar. Their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God. And for the Holy One of Israel. Because he has made you beautiful. He's made the sinners beautiful. Now, we live in a world uh, which uh, the influencers and the papers and the celebrities and the, the films and the sex educators try to fool us to live in the filth of this world. I've used this illustration before, but it did happen to me, so I think it's fair enough to, to use it. I once went swimming through lovely, clear Mediterranean waters. I was swimming parallel to the, parallel to the, uh, to the seashore, um, and uh, it was great. I had my goggles on. I could see beautifully occasional fish. And then suddenly it all got cloudy and then got thicker and thicker and thicker. And what is that? And I got closer, it was next to a pipe, and out of this pipe was all this filth coming out. I immediately felt revolted because I thought it was actual sewage. <laughs> um, it turned out to be just uh, um, waste products of an olive factory, but it was disgusting enough, even, even, even that. But we are fooled into, into swimming through the unholiness and filth of sin all of the time. But what does, what does Christ do for us? Jesus says 
in Revelation 3.18 to a church that was, we might say, cold and backslidden, uh, the church at Laodicea. He says, I counsel you, buy from me, free of course, from, from gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, in, in the book of Revelation, it's interesting. It's always talking about white garments. And sometimes when you read it, you might even feel a sense of, well, maybe, maybe I'm not, not a real Christian because there's been sin in my life. And I haven't earned my white garments. I've, I've you know, and you can read various ones. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And you might say, well, I'm not an overcomer. So I can't be wearing white garments. But here's the wonderful truth. When you turn and trust in Christ, he clothes our souls in his white garments. That's what, that's what he's saying to the people at Laodicea. They didn't deserve the white garments he was going to give to them. And Paul uses a, a, different, um, a different, slightly different expression. He says in Galatians 3.27, All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. How wonderful that is. We who are, by nature, filthy, swimming through the filth of this world. Attitudes, nastiness, selfishness, arrogance, pride, rebellion, lust, all of these things we're swimming through. And we suddenly notice, my goodness, how awful it is. And we realize, oh, I'm covered in this stuff, you know. Like I was when I got out of, got out of the, the water sharpish and tried to find out what it was that I was covered in. But here we're told that Christ cleanses us from all sin and we are made beautiful in Christ Isaiah tells us that for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful now how can we have more of a holy God in our life I believe is also realizing how beautiful is the Christian life that God has made for us and do we really want to mess it up again do we really want to make the Christian life um, you know, an unholy mess. I think when you read Romans, you see that Paul uh, uh, shows his gospel to the Christians, which is written from Romans 4 to 8, is the gospel for Christians, um, that actually Paul is trying to show to the believers there's an alternative to the life of shame. You know, what, what do you profit from that which you are now ashamed? The life of the Holy Spirit is one of life and peace and glory and beauty. And uh, all of us as believers are encouraged, both in the book of Isaiah and, in, of uh, course, in the New Testament, to walk in the light and glory of the Lord with the beauty that he has given us. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, uh, it is... Lord, um, difficult for us to, to plumb the depths of this wonderful grace that you have for sinful people. We thank you, Lord. We have, we have beauty for ashes, Lord. We have, we have a garland of joy, Lord, where there was mourning and, and guilt and, and, and terror. Lord, you have granted to, to those who believe joy in the Lord. You've granted to us, Lord, a wonderful life in which we may live in the presence of the Holy One of Israel, in the Holy God, 
in the presence of the Holy God. And Lord, that we may also endeavor to live a holy life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now Lord, we ask you that each one of us in our church may, Lord, in this coming week, uh, Lord, be able to live in the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God, walking by the Spirit of God. And able, Lord, to put to death the deeds of the body, uh, Lord, to crush them. Lord, that we'll turn from worms into, into mighty spiritual crushers of evil. Um, Lord, uh, we thank you, Lord, that though you've also given us this wonderful, beauty, beautiful message uh, for the non-Christian world. And we know, Lord, that uh, this world in which we live desperately needs the wonderful peace and joy that comes from Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you are going to give each one of us opportunities to share with neighbours or friends, relatives, strangers, uh, this great message in this coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.